My name is David Birnbaum. Welcome to The Safe Space. Today, my guest is communication coach and author Don Watkins. Don and I discussed the topic of one of his books, Equal is Unfair. I really wanted to talk about this with Don because it seems to be against basically everything I'd learn about equality. He's saying that it's unfair, that there's something unjust about the very notion of equality, in particular the way it's talked about today. And so I wanted to dive into that topic because I think it's interesting for me and for many of you to hear this alternative perspective. I also specifically asked Don why he cares about this topic, cares enough about it to spend years actually writing a book about this topic. It was a really interesting conversation and really helped me clarify my thinking about the nature of equality and what it would really mean. So I hope you get as much out of this as I did. And if you like it, definitely let us know and subscribe to the show on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app and consider supporting us at thesafespace.ca. Hey, Don, how's it going? Good. Good to talk to you. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, you have, let's let's say from the circles I come from, definitely a controversial view. You, you wrote a book, Equal is Unfair. Um, right now, I hear a lot about equality being extremely important and even equity being very important. So why don't you just get me started with how you view this and, and what led to writing a book about it? Yeah, well, I'll start out with I mean, the subtitle of the book is America's Misguided Fight on Income Inequality. So one of the unfortunate aspects of the conversation is that equality gets treated as something that you can think of across the board. But one of the points that we make is that different conceptions of equality conflict with one another. And in particular, there's a conception that we inherit from Enlightenment thinkers and the founding fathers of equality that is, you can think of it as political equality. And sometimes it's equality before the law or equality of rights. And this is the idea that human beings aren't born into castes of ruler and subject. It's that we're all born metaphysically equal and that we have equal rights that the government has to protect. And therefore, it can't make distinctions between rich and poor, men and women, black and white. It has to treat each person as an individual economic equality is very different because when people are treated as individuals by the government, one of the things that happens is that people produce different amounts of wealth because they have different abilities, they have different ambitions, they enter different kinds of fields, they create enormously different amounts of value. And so if they're treated equally and their rights are protected equally, there's going to be massive economic inequality. And the only way you get anything approaching economic equality is for government to treat people differently. And that is that the more you earn, the less right you have to it. And the less you earn, the more right you have to other people's wealth. And it's not just economic versus political equality that are different conceptions. There's also issues in regard to race, let's say, I think is the most obvious and important one where it's in a certain way you can think of it as political equality that government can't make distinguish, distinctions between race. But if we think about more personal interaction, treating people equally regardless of race is a real moral value and there's really something wrong if you're discriminating against people or have prejudice on the basis 
of something like race. And so the what we argue in the book is we're focused just on economic inequality, which at the time when we wrote it was the kind of central issue that was being raised. And it's only been later that others have kind of become more to the fore. So if you think about the the kind of discussions of equality and equity today, they're usually focused much more on um, race, sex, and uh, sexual preference type issues than they are in economic issues. But what you can say is that the elevating of equality into a focus all comes from the same place. And that's from a philosophic view called egalitarianism. And egalitarianism is the idea that our top value, at least our top political value, should be equality. And we could talk about more about how they think about it and why I think it's wrong. But at the end of the day, the short version of why we're challenging that in the book, and I co-authored it with Yaron Brook, the reason that we're challenging it is because in the end, it means penalizing people for their virtues. That is economic inequality in a free society. You can have versions of economic inequality that are the result of lack of freedom, where if you think about a communist regime, there's a certain way in which they're pursuing equality. But if you actually look at the way that people live, the people with power have, you know, castles and, uh, you know, their, their dashas and whatnot. And then it's the people without it have nothing. But in a free society, in general, what you see is that people's, that inequality is produced by people's virtues. That is, some people are enormously productive. And if you have a productive genius, if you have a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos who transform life and who create value for billions of people, of course, they're going to make way less or make way more than a teacher. Even if they're a great teacher, they're providing value to, let's say, 30 people. So just on that basis alone, it makes no sense that you'd expect anything like equality. And I think there's nothing more corrupt than penalizing people for their virtues. Well, and so that's really interesting because there's a there's a few points that stick out, but I'll highlight two in particular is, you know, many of my peers wouldn't call themselves egalitarian, but that's what seems to be like. There's just this you know, everything should be equal in every respect. Like they have this idea, but they wouldn't necessarily view Jeff Bezos as actually productive, right? So there's this view that, you know, he gets rich on the backs of his employees and this sort of thing. Do you think the, do you think the primary issue is their lack of clarity or their, their, that they don't view like Jeff Bezos's productivity in the right way, or even if they thought he did like earn his wealth in their view that, no, we should still take it and make things equal. Cause it seems to be both. And I'm interested in your thoughts on sort of those two parts of it. So anytime you have a moral ideal that kind of becomes the center point of your thinking an ideal doesn't necessarily mean that they that every advocate says, yes, we should do everything to achieve this regardless of other values, regardless of other concerns. But what they do say is that in effect, every step we take in this direction is something to be cheered and every step away is something that should be concerning. That at the very least, our default assumption should be that things should be equal. And if there's any departure, that's something we should be very skeptical of. Whenever you have a moral ideal, whether it's 
equality or sacrifice, that ideal comes with a whole view of the world, and you could put it in philosophical terms, it comes with a metaphysics. It comes with, this is the way the world works. And, and, and in part, that's what justifies the ideal. And in part, it is um, the ideal that leads people to grasp onto this metaphysics. So let me make that a little bit more clear. And I'll start with something other than egalitarianism, just so that we can see this is a widespread phenomenon. So if you think about the idea of we have a common notion that what's moral is to sacrifice oneself for others, part of the metaphysics of that is the idea of original sin, although it's not only original sin in, in Christian terms that uh, carries this view. It's any view of man's innately depraved. So if you think that man's innately depraved, well, then of course you should sacrifice. How could the good be doing something for you who is evil? So you see that there's this kind of metaphysics and it's related to the ideal. So what happens is what kind of picture could lead one to think that equality across the board is a moral ideal? What kind of picture of human behavior? And the egalitarians are not, like they have a lot to say on this. And the core idea is that nobody is responsible for their wealth because nobody's actually responsible for their life. So this this is most, I don't know if he's the first one, I think he's the first one, but certainly the most influential person to express this version of the view is John Rawls. And so John Rawls was an egalitarian who said, look, even if it's true that somebody through their, their ingenuity, their creativity created something like Amazon, I'm being anachronistic because he wrote this uh, in the 70s, I believe, 71 maybe, um, even if they use their intelligence, their creativity, their ambition, their drive, their hard work to create something, well, where did that come from? Well, it came from their brain or their genes or their upbringing, and they can't take credit for that, so they can't take credit for the result. So the idea is we are all determined, or at least we're overwhelmingly influences, influenced by factors outside of our control, and therefore, we don't get any credit for the things that we as an individual seem to achieve. A more political version of this that people are probably familiar with is the Elizabeth Warren or Barack Obama, you didn't build that, or nobody gets rich on their own. That it's the more collectivist view that says, well, it's really society that's responsible for achievements, and therefore, it's society that should get the credit. So there's a lot that we can say about all of those points, but the, the, th the main thing I want to stress and highlight here is that, yes, it's never that people just have, or it's rarely that people just have a moral ideal in a vacuum. It is embedded in a whole view of this is how the world works, and therefore, this is why my moral ideal is right. And so, I understand that. Do you think, because there's some of my peers, and I think I was this way as well, I very much still viewed that I did build what I was building, but I owed it to the culture still. So does that, like I owed the world something still. So do you think that is like in, in some sense, I didn't think I built it or deserved what I could build because of, you know, I was born with certain skills or do you think it's more so um, that just self-sacrifice? Like even if I earn stuff, I have to sacrifice it. Well, it could certainly be that. But I mean, you tell me, do you have a sense of why you thought you owed something back or that it that you didn't have a moral right to what you earned? 
For me, it was like, I think I was more of a utilitarian. Like, I just thought the best thing was to give, like, was to do for everyone. So no, no matter how good I was, I was just one of the people I was working for. So I like, I don't know how that fits in with the egalitarianism, but that's kind of my view is I remember like, oh, I'm just one of a billion. Like, so my, my happiness matters to me the same way. And that would have been with anything I did. Yeah. And so people can hold all of these ideas in different ways. And it's certainly true that a person, and I think a lot of religious people in America. So if you think there's a lot of Republicans who are religious and they will, they, they don't like this view of you didn't build that. And they'll often have a self-confidence like the small businessmen who oh, I know damn well that I built that. And they'll feel, you know, aghast at the idea of not getting credit for their achievements. And yet they still feel at the end of the day, well, I have a moral obligation to serve and sacrifice. And it's um, now, and there, now there's a metaphysics built into that, right? It's the idea that what's good is obedience to God's commandments. And God tells us to serve your neighbor. And there's other views associated with it, including metaphysical views or, or causal views of the way the world works. And so one of those views is that the alternative to sacrifice is to sacrificing yourself is to sacrifice others. And it's, well, I don't want to be one of those people. So I, I better, I, I owe something to society. I need to, to help out as it were. Um, so the egalitarianism though is a, is a particular kind of strain. So not everybody who believes in sacrifice believes in egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is when your primary moral judgment is the relationship between individuals. And so if it's one person has more and one person has less, the default view is we should be very skeptical of that. And in, take Rawls's view. Rawls did not say, well, we have to eliminate all those inequalities. What he said was, well, you eliminate them unless there's, there's one thing that can justify economic inequality. And that is if, if allowing a little bit of economic inequality helps out the worst off. So the idea is Jeff Bezos should not make one cent more than the than somebody who's not particularly intelligent, not particularly driven, passive, uncreative, couldn't, you know, would rather be hanging out at the sports bar down the street than at his desk at work if he even has a job. The idea is that if allowing Jeff Bezos to be earn some more money than everybody else, but be on the lowest common denominator, if that helps the guy who's you know spending all his free time at the sports bar, well then maybe we'll let Jeff Bezos do it. So it's the idea of people should be held down to the lowest common denominator unless it serves the worst off in society. And now I think that is should strike people as, it, if not self-evidently corrupt, at least something really dubious. Like, why is the justification for achievement, virtue, success, the worst possible kind of person you can imagine? And I, I think there is no justification for it. And I want to touch on the point you mentioned about, like, you know, we could allow uh, Bezos to earn more money if it helped those, you know, at the bottom. Because the other part of your title is unfair. Whereas many people that I talk to 
like they more view it as either it's good to take or it's at least neutral to not take. They, I don't see anyone who has a framework that, no, it's actually unfair to the people we're taking from. So like, can you tell me a bit, a bit, a bit more about like how it's not only just like neutral or something, it's really unfair when we're taking from those who have to give to those who, ha- who don't it's very unfair to those people because I don't have many people who view it that way. Sure. So let me explain it this way. Imagine you and me and some of our friends were sitting around in a room and like a masked person ran in and just dumped, you know, $10,000 on the desk and ran out. And we didn't, and we had reason to believe it was like, all right, we get to keep it. It's, it wasn't like stolen cash or anything like that. It's just a gift or it falls from the sky. You might think, all right, well, what is the fair way to divide it up? And I think people's intuition, right? Their senses, well, it wouldn't be fair for Don to come up and say, well, how about I get 75% and you guys kind of divide the 25%. The intuition is, well, no, the, the fair is that it should be equal. And you could might, maybe you could think of scenarios where, okay, we'd let you have a little bit more, but you'll pay the taxes for us so that we don't have to bother. You know, like the default assumption is equality. Well, contrast that. And I think that's how egalitarians in effect take they're thinking about wealth. The goods are here. Society has all these resources. There's this collective pot, and how should we divide it up? And they'll even they call it you know redistributive ju- justice. So it's the idea of we we know we're distributing. We as society are distributing resources. How should we do it fairly? But now think of a different kind of scenario, which is all right. I spent you know I have a self-sustaining farm. I just spent the season working the land. I've grown a bunch of, you know, carrots and lettuce and things, right? This and now I have enough food to get, you know, me through the the year and sell in order to support the rest of my needs and everything. And now you are down the street on your self-sustaining farm and you are too busy watching episodes of Breaking Bad to like be bothered to go out and grow any food. And now you say, this is unfair. Look how unequal we are. Shouldn't we be dividing it up equally? And so what the egalitarians drop out in their conception of fairness is the whole perspective that everything that all material wealth, all material values have to be produced. They have to be produced through individual thought and effort. And once you bring in the context of individual thought and effort, then what is fair and what is just is, at least on its face, and I think in the end this is right, it's that it belongs to the person whose thought and effort brought it into existence. And that therefore, it is unjust to deprive them of what their life went into creating. And part of the injustice or part of what it means to say that it's unjust is human life requires of us as individuals to exercise the thought and effort to create what we need in order to survive. And so what egalitarianism in any form of going to war with economic inequality amounts to is penalizing people who did what life's required in order to reward people who didn't. And that I think is the, the real core of, that is unjust. 
that is treating somebody unfairly. It's treating them other than how they deserve to be treated. And so, you know, I think that that makes sense to me in terms of, you know, you have your farm, it's fruitful. I have my farm and I don't tend to anything. But where I I think people struggle is, okay, well, you own a farm, you hire 10 people and they work the farm. Shouldn't they like, because you mentioned thought and effort and like when there starts to be I don't want to say a disconnect because there isn't one, but when there starts to be more people involved in like a hierarchy and a process, then, okay, you know, your thought went into deciding how to grow your farm to such a point where you have 10 people working for you, but then they're putting in the effort of growing the crops, of working the fields and stuff. And so how do you decide what's fair in that respect, because people would say, and this, this is kind of the argument you hear about, you know, Amazon and others. Well, it's like Jeff Bezos doesn't pay his people enough and like, it's not fair. Yeah. And so the purpose of my example was to bring out the principle. And so once you under, if you agree with the principle that yes, if a person does exercise thought and effort and create something, they have a moral right to it and it's unjust to take it away from them. Then there is a further question of, well, how does that imply in what we're describing really is a cooperative venture? Or you can think more broadly where this actually comes up in our lives in a division of labor economy where we don't live on self-sustaining farms, but we work together in groups and we don't get and consume the material resources that we create, right? If you work, you know, at a, at a factory, you know, if you work at Amazon's factory, it's not that you get all of the books that you piece together with the machine to take home and like eat for the winter. It's that you get money and you exchange that money for the other things in the economy you want. So it's, well, how does it apply in that context? And there's definitely things that are complicated about it, but at the end, the same principle applies. In a free society, it's not as if anybody's forced to work with me on my farm. They have a free choice. And so in order for me to persuade them to come work with me, I have to offer them a better deal. And that might not only mean more money. It can mean better times to work, more enjoyable kinds of work. Um, Whatever the case, I have to out-compete other people vying for them. And so it's I'm going to be paying them what they regard as what is the the best deal of what recognizes the value that they bring to the table. And if I don't, well, then somebody else is going to compete them away from me. And so the standard of what a person earns in a free society is what they can achieve through their voluntary interaction with others. The value you create is the is that which other value creators agree to give you in trade. So let's take an example that's now in a division of labor context, but easier to see this point, which is how did JK Rowling get to be a billionaire? Well, it's not that she wrote Harry Potter and Obama read it and said, this is really good. You're worthy of a billion dollars and society's now going to give it to you. It was that millions of individuals made individual decisions that that book which let's say it costs $10 or $20, that book was more valuable to them than that $10 or $20. And so it was, they got a book that for them, I mean, for many people, it was, you know, a life-changing book and series of books. And for Rowling's and her publisher, they got the money. And what that added up to was a perspective that 
that those the the you know 10 and 20 dollar transactions of millions of people who saw themselves getting value from it added up into JK Rowling being a billionaire and so it's really the same principle she created a value and how valuable it was was determined by the free choices of millions of individuals and therefore that's what she has a moral right to she has a right to what she gained through trade and that that's kind of the way to think about um, what a person earns is not something that a Harvard researcher can, you know, do some statistical study on and figure out, oh, this is how much value you generated. No, it's what's determined by the free choices of anybody who chooses to deal with you. Right. And I, I like that you brought in that as a creative example. I was recently talking with someone and they seemed very in favor of like, you know, people being creative and earning what they've earned through creative work. And then I highlight, well, like the way I like to be creative is thinking about company systems, thinking about products I can create and this sort of thing. That's the realm I'm creative in, but I'm seen as like not being able to pursue that on an equal footing to someone who's an artist or a singer or that sort of thing. So it's an interesting um, juxtaposition, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, in her book, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand has a really eloquent statement. There's a speech given by an artist, and part of what he stresses is that there's a fundamental similarity between the process of creativity of a great artist and a great businessman or a great industrialist. It's that all of it involves using the human mind to project something that could be and that would be better than what already exists and then exercising the effort to re to bring that vision into reality that it's the same process in in a fundamental way uh, and it's they're both rational processes if done correctly and so yes i think you're right that part of what happens is that people can see i i don't have a pro what here's one way to think about it when they actually see the value that's being created by an individual, it's rare for most people to resent that or view that as a bad thing. Some people do if they're very deep uh, egalitarians, if they're motivated by envy and really malicious motives. But for most people, they'll, they'll grant, look, if you're creating value and I see that you're creating value, and that's why at least during his lifespan, Steve Jobs did not get a lot of um, pushback on his on his wealth. People recognized, well, we love iPhones. It revolutionized everything. We love our iPads and our iPods and things. It's when it's particularly when people don't see the value creation involved and they don't recognize there being a real value there that you especially get this antagonism towards their wealth. And so I think it's helpful to explain and show where the value achievement is. But part of what goes on is because our leading intellectuals are egalitarians or some other version that is opposed to capitalism, opposed to freedom, opposed to the individual, um, they never teach us that. They never help people to see the value. Instead, they try to obfuscate it. And so the the kind of thing that we should learn going through our lives and that the that intellectuals and members of the media should be helping us understand is how is something like what is the value of Amazon? What really did he create? Was it just he put up a website and happened that a lot of people decided to use it? Or was there something much more going on there? Or what about a hedge fund manager? What value are they creating? 
Those are things that need to be explained to people because they're not necessarily obvious, but instead the opposite occurs where the, where the people who want to take down a Jeff Bezos or take down a hedge fund manager and deprive them of what they've earned and their freedom to earn, they make it unclear or they never articulate what the value that's being created. And then they'll attack them for perceived, in some cases, real sins, if you want to put it that way, or real vices. Yeah, and, and so we don't have to, we don't have time today to get into kind of how <laughs> explaining that to people, but I think it's a really good um, idea that to, to get people thinking that okay, no, they should look into this and really think: is there value being created there, and and why they think there might not be? But what I want to well, let me just say one quick thing. So one a, a question to ask yourself is. Why are people voluntarily dealing with them as employees, as customers? And now you might conclude, well, it's not voluntary. They're getting a special favor from the government or, or something like that, where they're literally coercing people. Um, but ask yourself why people are choosing to deal with them. And that will start to point you in the direction of the value they're creating. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, what I want to ask you, though, is why do you care about this so much, right? I, I always try and bring these conversations back to why the person I'm talking to, you know, spends time on this issue. You spent enough time to write a book about it. Why does this matter to you um, in your life? My primary concern in life is creative achievement, my own and my admiration for others and achievement more broadly. So as a kid, like my world, you know, centered around great baseball players or I was into martial arts. And so there was Jean-Claude Van Damme and Bruce Lee and all these people, um, people who excel and display the best of human beings in the arts, in sports, in sciences, more broadly, the pursuit of knowledge. And later, as I developed in recognizing that that same thing occurred in business and in industry, in software creation, all of these fields, what matters to me more than anything is human excellence. And what I see with egalitarianism is a war on human excellence, a view that we should scoff at, deny, denounce, and strip of their freedom and wealth anybody who's achieved human excellence. And of course, they'll rationalize it and say, oh, no, this person's bad for these reasons. And sometimes they'll get things right. It's not as if everybody who has a fortune, even a fortune earned on the free market, is good or didn't do things that I think, no, that's, that's immoral or whatever. But there are and I say, as a rule over time, the people who are successful and achieve something, that is something good. That's something to be celebrated. It's something to learn from and something to emulate. And so what I've devoted my career to is whenever I see something good, like I want to fight for that and advocate for it because that's what uh, I admire. It's what brings me inspiration to the extent I've achieved anything. It is by being able to emulate people who've achieved something even more that I can gain inspiration and direction from. Yeah, what really comes to mind for me is the idea of hero. Like, who do I look up to and for what reason? I was really moved by, um, you know, Michael Jordan's 
uh, recent, the, la- this, the recent series on Netflix, The Last Dance. And it was interesting to see like the kind of tear in him of like, he was trying to be great. He was trying to be a hero. And then he wanted to get out of the spotlight because there was this almost desire to tear him down. And for me, it's like, I, I've thought for a long time, like, are there heroes left? Are we allowed to look up to people and have heroes? And I find that the more like money is involved in achievement or associated with achievement, the more it seems to be soured. And like, that's kind of, it, it makes me feel a bit dejected. Well, we talked a little bit about the metaphysics behind bad ideas and behind moral ideas. And one of those issues, and this is something Ayn Rand explores in depth in Atlas Shrugged, is what you can call the soul-body dichotomy. And what this does is basically says there's kind of two different worlds. There's this higher world, non-material world, and then there's the low world, the low of material things, the flesh, the earth. And part of what the soul-body dichotomy teaches us is that the higher things, the art, the non-commercial, that's what's really important in life. That's what's truly valuable. And the earthly, the bodily, the material, the commercial, that is not really valuable. And so that's why you get this idea of, oh, the artists, yes. Well, in effect, they can get material rewards because they're not concerned with material rewards. Um, but that, but they're, but they're, that's because they're superior to the you know lowly people down here who are just trying to make a living uh, and trying to make a fortune. And so I think it's that kind of view that is at uh, is operating whenever what when you're pointing out yeah when money gets involved it kind of changes the equation from them and part of the way it changes the equation is it's oh you're not really motivated by the high and the noble and ayn rand's view and my view is that there is no soul body dichotomy there's this earth and the mind and what the mind does is it uh, achieves enormous great things by improving human life and part of the improvement is material but the but that it's also the source of our spiritual values but our but and material values themselves are highly spiritual so if you even think why does a person want to earn a fortune i think there's a lot to say about that but take it in the most practical terms what do people use fortunes for i mean even set aside fortunes. What do people use money for? Well, a lot of it is spiritual goods. Buying a Harry Potter book. It's not like a Harry Potter book is like, oh, this is going to help me cook or something. No, it's going to help you enjoy your life more. Or if you think about like travel, I get to see the art at the Louvre or in Italy. I get to visit my friend on his or her wedding. The, there is no division between the material and the spiritual, that they're united properly. And so to, to condemn money is really to condemn that which allows us to achieve our material needs and our spiritual needs. What, what comes to mind really strongly for me is a conversation I had talking with some family members about pursuing, like, you know, thinking I'll be very rich one day, potentially. And, you know, what would lead to that? And I mentioned, like, you know, I don't chase after money as such. But, you know, if I'm creating value, I'll be able to earn money. And and they pointed back or they, they pushed back saying, well, unless you're obsessed with money, like only people obsessed with becoming rich get rich. 
And they didn't seem to understand like Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, these people, they are not concerned with how much money can I make? They're concerned with there's something I want to see. How do I create that thing? And again, it brings me back to this you mentioned in Atlas Shrugged, there's a comparison between the artist creating and, and you know, an industrious creating and just wanting to, you know, build what they want to see in the world. Um, and again, it seems like perhaps I'm off off the mark a little bit, but it seems like that really touches on this issue of, yeah, they think that those two things would somehow be separate. Yeah. And part of what happens, though, is that precisely because for, I think, moral reasons, now it's immoral reasons, but reasons motivated by a moral ideal, whether it's egalitarianism or the idea of sacrifice, um, part of part of what's going on. Oh no, I lost my train of thought. What was the last point that you made? My my family members like they thought. Oh, concerned with money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, part of what happens is that because you're told that money is corrupt and low, it's not part of the higher things in life. Is that? A lot of people are, is that people aren't taught to think about it in proper terms. And so there are people who chase money as an end in itself and they don't see a kind of higher spiritual side to it. And so, you know, the kind of people who like, all right, I'm going to create an internet course teaching people how to get rich so I can get rich. What do I know about getting rich? Well, let me take an internet course and copy that one. And then like it's, there is this kind of like chasing money and not concern with value. Um, and I think that's exacerbated precisely by not presenting people with an integrated picture of what you should want is to create something that you regard as good and earn wealth doing it. Use that to support your life. And so I don't think that the, it, the goal is like pile up as much money as you can. Um, I think the goal is that you find a career that sustains your life and creates value and some of those careers have the potential to make a lot of money. And if you can do that, that's great. Uh, money unlocks opportunity. It allows you to do more with your life and to achieve more with your life if you earn it, but it's not what life is about. So it's, it's, uh, you have to be able to think about it both as something good, as a positive, as a value. But also I think it's, it shouldn't be seen as an end in itself. And if the, it's the people who condemn money that in effect encourage people who reject their kind of, uh, who reject their, you know, let us say, um, disdain for money, leave them without a moral framework for thinking about the positive ways to earn money and the, and the positive role that money and wealth should play in life. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I want to just, I want to end on, do you have any last thoughts on anything we've talked about or in particular, why someone watching or listening to this should, you know, personally care about this issue? Like, why does it matter or anything we've covered? Well, I always think, so this in many ways is positioned as a political issue. And I think what I've tried to bring out is the way in which it's fundamentally a moral issue with political implications. And it's what should my attitude be towards achievement and success? And I think that a healthy attitude towards achievement and success is that it's something to be celebrated. It's something to be emulated. It's something to use in your life to make your life the best that it can be. 
And whether that involves money or whether that involves excelling at a career that's not particularly remunerative like teaching, let's say, um, it's, it's viewing a kind of unity of interest or brotherhood, not based on a person's income for better or for worse, but from devotion to creation, from viewing yourself as I'm a creative person, I'm working to bring things into the world that I regard as good, whether it's art, whether it's a certain kind of software, whether it's a certain you know kind of lamp or house, to use an example uh, from Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead, where the hero is an architect. Um, view yourself as fundamentally a creator concerned with creation. And in that context, money is a really good thing. Success is a really good thing. And when people are obsessed with inequality, sometimes it's just because they're confused and it's tied to certain real issues in human life. But the real intellectual drivers of that force, they are not focused on creation and they're not trying to teach you how to fill your own life with joy by being a creator. What they want is to fuel resentment so that they can feel superior and so that they can have political power to rule the creators. And I think that's kind of the deepest perspective we try to bring out in Equals Unfair. But at the end of the day, I think the number one message is that how the question that we should be concerned with is what is the role of creative thinking and purposeful action in life and centering your life around a real creative purpose is what everybody should aim at. And then you can see the real viciousness of ideologies that try to vilify that. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me about this today. My pleasure.